from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. We're on the road from the 2022 Pro Farmer Crop Tour, ground truthing this year's crops across the Midwest. We'll dig into the results and more over the next 60 minutes. As scouts searched fields in the east, scouts generally found a good crop, but maybe not one that will exceed last year's yields or be able to make up for the scars in the west. The western side was off to a disappointing start. Look, it's not a disaster like Nebraska was for sure, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's not up to snuff. That's as those in the south deal with a deluge of rain, bringing some relief and challenges. And in John's world. Ah, crop tour critics, you gotta love them. The 2022 Pro Farmer Crop Tour on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Pioneer. For cutting edge agronomic advice for your farm, count on your local Pioneer team for year-round crop management insights. Pioneer, an American seed brand since 1926. And by Pivot Bioproven 40, predictable, productive, weatherproof. Turn to a better nitrogen with Pivot Bio Proven 40. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Now from the news, the Pro Farmer Crop Tour wrapping up in Thursday right here in Rochester, Minnesota. And it was clear from the start that this year's corn and soybean crops have been battling with Mother Nature throughout the growing season. Pro Farmer releasing its final production estimates on Friday. These numbers taking into consideration information gathered during crop tour, but also crop maturity, acreage adjustments, historical differences between the tour and USDA's numbers and areas outside of those sampled during the tour. Pro Farmer's estimates putting corn at just over 168 bushels an acre. That's a drop of almost nine bushels it projected last year. USDA earlier this month projecting just over 175 bushels per acre for corn yield. Soybeans that coming in at over 51.7 bushels an acre, down less than 1% from last year. USDA projecting a slightly bigger soybean crop. Now let's break it down with this state by state look, starting with the winners, Illinois and Iowa topping the list for corn yields this year, both coming in at 198 bushels per acre. USDA is projecting a whopping 205 bushels per acre in Iowa, but for soybeans, Iowa came in second for yields at 60 bushels per acre. And in Illinois, 203 bushels bushels per acre for corn from USDA, but look at the bean number 64 bushels an acre coming out on top. USDA projecting 66 bushels per acre. Now Nebraska's pro farmer estimates coming in at 164 bushels an acre. That is way behind USDA's current projection of 181. And it's not much better news for the soybeans there at 53 bushels per acre. That's two bushels per acre away from USDA's. And a look at South Dakota, where there was also disappointment on the tour there. Pro Farmer is only projecting a yield of 122 bushels per acre for corn. That's 25 bushels per acre off from USDA. Soybeans, that's at 41 bushels per acre two behind USDA. We'll take a deeper dive into what scouts saw on Pro Farmer Crop Tour coming up later. And this may be a sign of just how difficult the weather has been for many producers this year. New prevent plant numbers from USDA Farm Service Agency's August report released this week. It puts prevent plant acres at 6.4 million across the U.S. That's three times higher than last year. Corn, the hardest hit, with more than 3 million acres unplanted. North Dakota has just over 1 million acres of that, and there's more than half a million in South Dakota. 
Well, Texas really needed rain, but portions of the state got inundated this week. The Dallas Fort Worth area seen its wettest 24 hours in nearly a century with more than nine inches of rain recorded. The rain hanging on over the area for days. That's before that system shifted east, bringing flooding to Mississippi and heavy rain to northern Louisiana. Farmers concerned about the cotton still out in the field, possibly rotting because they can't get it out to harvest it. Also, soybeans were a concern. In China, extreme heat and drought are causing widespread problems. China's heat wave has now stretched past 70 days. There's concern damage to crops and water scarcity could spread to other food-related areas, resulting in a substantial price increase or even a food crisis. Meanwhile, the drought affecting Spain, Portugal, France, and Italy is on track to be the worst in 500 years. All of these drought issues, analysts say, are compounding existing supply chain problems and adding pressure to energy and food prices. Well, something else to keep an eye on as we move into harvest, natural gas prices. On Tuesday, U.S. natural gas for September delivery topped $10 per million British thermal units. That's up more than 20% this month and more than twice the price of a year ago. In fact, prices have not been this high since 2008. Analysts say the highs show the unceasing demand for U.S. shale gas across the Atlantic and likely point to higher prices ahead. The latest price spike coming in response to Russia's plans to shut down one of Europe's main fuel arteries for a few days at the end of the month. Well, weather, definitely a newsmaker this week, but what systems is Matt Yurisavik keeping his eye on coming up next week? We'll have a check of weather right after the break. areas of Texas went from the driest August on record to the wettest August on record in just a matter of hours. Matt Urasavik joining us now for weather. Matt, what was it with that system that caused these hurricane-like rainfall totals in Texas and across the south this week? Well, time that system was actually caused by kind of a stalled out front that was moving through from parts of the southwest over towards the Gulf Coast and still moving across as we head through the weekend. We'll get a couple more of those systems as we head through this upcoming week. But take a look at this. All that uh, really historic rainfall, northern parts of Texas, that really helped out the root zone. You can even see parts of Arizona and New Mexico extremely damp now, and so is parts of the Gulf Coast as well. That right there will really reflect the latest drought monitor and if we take a look at that notice what we're dealing with here improving drought conditions the Texas Panhandle northern Texas as well and then Colorado down to New Mexico and parts of Arizona where all those drought conditions that we've seen really since the beginning of this year starting to be resolved by some of those monsoon rains in the southwest and that heavy rainfall which we're expecting more of as we head through this week in parts of the south and you can really start to see where those improvements happen parts of Louisiana up into northern Texas and then back towards the south and west and we'll continue to keep an eye on that. But here's a look at the jet stream as we head through this week. Still staying very warm across the lower 48 because we've got a big ridge continuing to be possible into the early part of the week. A little bit cooler northern Great Lakes and the interior portions of the northeast but still warm and muggy across the middle part of the country and hot and dry across the west unless you're dealing with some of those uh, scattered showers and storms. By the end of the week though, take a look at that right there 
A dip in the jet stream could bring some more precipitation into the northwest. Here's a look at Monday's forecast. A storm system starting to move off to the east. Scattered showers and storms under high pressure there across the southeast. That brings more chances for rain across parts of uh, the country where we're dealing with those drought conditions. Meanwhile, staying very mild across the north and across the west. It will be hot out there, but most of the rain staying across the deep south, across the Gulf Coast, and then up into the mid-Atlantic states. As we head through Wednesday, the last day of August, pushing a system across the east. And as we head into September, another stalled out front, bringing more showers and storms across parts of New Mexico, through Texas and Oklahoma, and then on to the east, while most of the country remains warm and dry out there. Here's a look at the temperatures for this week. Below normal, where we've got more of that precipitation, but much above normal in the west, where that ridge really is going to be in control and staying very warm across much of the lower 48. And here's a look at the precipitation below normal across the north and we're dealing with more rain especially across parts of Texas much above normal and that could eat away at more of those drought conditions through this week. Now we did put together that fall temperature forecast September October and November. It looks very warm across the lower 48 just normal temperatures expected there across the northern plains and here's a look at the precipitation forecast other than parts of Florida and the Gulf Coast and the Pacific Northwest staying very very dry across much of the country. Time back to you. Thanks, Matt. Well, weather was definitely the story of crop tour this year. We'll hear from Chip Flory and Brian Grady about the surprises, disappointments and highlights of Pro Farmer Crop Tour this year and the impact that it could have on the U.S. crop supplies this year. That conversation is coming up next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Enzone from Farm Shop MFG, which allows you to rehydrate your soybeans from 10 to 13 percent. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's an extra semi-load added to your bottom line. Order your Enzone fan by August 29th and receive 7 percent off. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Well, let's dig into some of these numbers. We, we have the pro-farmer numbers that we talked about in the news segment, but as you go state by state, Brian, we'll talk to you because we knew that the eastern side was going to be good, but what were the biggest surprises and what was the biggest disappointment for you on the eastern leg of the tour? Well, uh, the biggest surprise, I think, was that the amount of tip back that we saw in Ohio and Indiana um, and just the inconsistency. Um, so that, that was, you know, I, I think I expected a little bit more. Uh, I, we knew that there was issues in the western side. Um, I anticipate just a little bit better. And Ohio's a, a tough one because last year, you know, it had such a stellar crop. It didn't really have an Ohio crop. It had kind of an Indiana crop. Yeah. And I wanted to see an Indiana crop out of Ohio again. And I kind of did. I just didn't see it to the full degree. You knew Eastern Iowa was going to be good. I mean, I remember when you came on the show in early July, you were saying, listen, Iowa has the chance to make a record crop this year based on what you had seen. Did it live up to what you thought it was? Well, eastern Iowa, I think, did. Northeastern Iowa in particular, there was some wow factor there, and that's the only state that I can say of the ones that I was in on the eastern leg that had some wow factor. And the wow factor, I, I think, is above Interstate 80, um, and more specifically, probably centered around inter, uh, Highway 20. Yeah. And, and Chip, you know, when you look at western <clears throat> Iowa, we knew there were going to be challenges but the bar was pretty low heading in yeah. Western Iowa. So did, did it surprise you at all? Western Iowa in yeah. particular, yeah. It, it did, honestly, because after the way that Western Iowa performed a year ago with some dry conditions and some heat, it wasn't as dry or as hot as it was this year. 
But we saw a really nice performance in Western Iowa on that corn crop a year ago. And to see Southwest Iowa fall off 10% and some, some reduction in West Central Iowa and, and just a, a slight reduction in Northwest Iowa from what wasn't really a great crop in, in 2021 up there. So again, I wasn't wowed by anything in, in Western Iowa, but I was wowed by South Dakota and Nebraska. There's no question about that. Yep, you were wowed, but not in a good way. I mean, no. you talk to a lot of farmers in those areas, but were you caught off guard with just how many challenges they had with that oh. heat and the drought? Oh yeah, the way that the crop has changed uh, from, August to, from August 1 to the end of August, is, is pretty remarkable, yeah. I think. And um, several of the guys have said, listen, there was that three-day period, I think it was August 5th, 6th, and 7th, 100 degrees, and the wind blew about 30 mile an hour with low humidity. And you could see the corn crop in eastern Nebraska kind of give up at that point. So, and then the crop has had to deal with some, some severe storms, uh, the um, uh, hail, replants in June on corn in Nebraska. That was pretty tough to see. Yeah, really tough to see because as scouts got, I mean, it wasn't just that. We saw some 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 weed pressure. We saw oh, some other things. Yeah. I mean, it was just ugly when you look at the Western Corn Valley oh, it's from, a mess. from the start. And that's what you said. The West is a mess. Yeah, yeah. Normally when I leave a dry area on a soybean crop in the third week of August, I think, geez, if they can get a rain tonight, that crop's still going to be okay. I left South Dakota and Eastern Nebraska and thought if they get a rain, it's, it's gonna help, but it's not gonna help that much. Chip mentioned how much changed from kind of even, even the beginning of August. And you know, as we got into Iowa and some of those other areas, talking to farmers, Brian, how much changed, some in a good way, some in a bad way, since July, since the beginning of July. So has the story changed just in the last four weeks, do you think overall? Yeah, I, I do, I do. And I think it's changed more in the West than it has in the East probably. <laughs> I, I think the East is holding up really well. They have the moisture uh, to, to continue into the finish line. So uh, I don't think the, the change in the Eastern side or the Eastern leg here uh, was super great. Uh, I, you know, as it was August 1, it probably still is right now, to okay. be honest. So. The question, the big question this week that everyone wanted to know, will the East make up for the problems that we saw in the West after you see these pro, the, the crop tour numbers come in? What are your thoughts? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. Um, you, you go in and, and you kind of hope that, that that will be the case, uh, but they lost too many bushels out West. Uh, we'd have to have a phenomenal year in the Eastern Belt, and, and it was, it's going to be a really good year. Let's be honest, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, uh, Eastern Iowa is going to be a really good year. I don't think it's going to be good enough to offset what they lost in the Western Belt. All right, well, we'll get Chip's thoughts on that. Plus, is that, that storyline, is that baked into the market at this point? We'll ask Chip that coming up later on U.S. Farm Report. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by RCIS. We believe in making connections count by building relationships with farmers and crop insurance agents. RCIS, we've got this. Equal opportunity provider. Well, Pro Farmer Crop Tour is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. While it seemed to be closely watched by market analysts, farmers, and others, it also brought out some critics. John Phipps provides his own perspective about the annual tour in John's World this week. 
Although I've only been tangentially associated with the Pro Farmer Crop Tour, I have followed the process and often the less than enjoyable work of both gathering and reporting the results during my whole career with Farm Journal. It's been around just a couple of years longer than I have been writing for them. Over those 30 years, I have noted the reliably rep repetitive criticism of almost every aspect by farmers, media, and others associated with ag. For example, you can always count on hearing how grabbing a few ears from a tiny number of fields can't possibly predict the yield of those fields, let alone the national crop. And I've heard Chip and others patiently explain that's not the goal. By doing the same thing in the same way every year, what the tour is trying to create are comparisons to previous years and to USDA numbers. Of course, many fault finders think the USDA numbers are useless or rigged or divorced from reality. One of my favorite wines is how the tour is not statistically vigorous. This complaint would be a little bit more credible for me if more than a few farmers had any knowledge of the science of surveys and statistics, or it could even explain what a normal distribution is. Nor, nor does the media help much to educate on the issue. Instead, we'd run Twitter surveys as factual headlines, even though they are totally bogus representations of reality. In fact, there are only a few efforts to extract information from farms and farmers that truly scientific polling organizations would label as useful. The Iowa Farm and Home Survey is a good example. The Purdue Ag Economy Survey is another, although I can't figure out what those results are really good for. Crop tour figures have never been presented as anything than one of many data points to inform your marketing plan. In fact, this is the real test for those loudest detractors. If you think the tour irrationally affects market actions, why not take some money from the dupes who do think tour numbers are actionable data by making a bet yourself? Commodity brokers would be happy to take your money. In my opinion, until you have some skin in the game, either defensively or aggressively, you're really not committed to your belief crop tour numbers are useless. Thank you, John, and you can catch his commentary on Farm Journal's YouTube page. Well, coming up next, Minnesota's own machinery, Pete, has tractor tails this week. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week we're off to Rising Sun, Ohio to check out a classic Silver King tractor. This tractor particularly uh, belongs to the daughter and son-in-law. Their son has another high crop. Uh, there was only ever five of them made, and they have two of the five. Where the other three are, not, are at, uh, we're not really too sure. Uh, they just recently bought this out of Pennsylvania, out of an estate. Like I said, they only ever made five of these. This was the start of the high crops back before John Deere and any of them knew what a high crop was. These were kind of made for the muck ground, which is close to Plymouth, where they grow vegetables. You can see that it's, it's a little bit different configuration. Some of them had 
38 inch rubber on this one's just got 28 but the the spindles were higher and the front end was all changed around to uh, accommodate the cultivators to cultivate three rows of vegetables radishes celery what whatever the favorite heath that, that manufactured the tractors also manufactured locomotives and clay machines and they were a specialty shop basically and and kind of still are uh, you would come in order what you wanted and they would try and accommodate you and build it for you and and i'm guessing that's how this came about somebody said hey we need something like this that can can straddle the the vegetable rows and be more efficient than than just a one row cultivator whether they're going to do much with it or not i don't know i think i think they're pretty much going to leave it the way it is Thanks, Greg. Well, the East did not necessarily to be the beast some expected this year, but it was still stronger than the West. So where were the biggest surprises that scouts saw on Pro Farmer Crop Tour this year? We're heading into the fields to get a firsthand look. That's next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. The 2022 Pro Farmer Crop Tour on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Pioneer. For cutting edge agronomic advice for your farm, count on your local Pioneer team for year-round crop management insights. Pioneer, an American seed brand since 1926. And by Pivot Bioproven 40. Predictable, productive, weatherproof. Turn to a better nitrogen with Pivot Bio Proven 40. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome back. While heading into Pro Farmer Crop Tour this week, market watchers knew the Eastern Legs crop would be better than what scouts would see on the West. Michelle Rook traveled across the Eastern Leg of the tour this week to see if it's the bin buster some are projecting. Here in the eastern leg of the Pro Farmer Crop Tour, scouts generally found a good crop, but maybe not one that will exceed last year's yields or be able to make up for the scars in the West. The tour kicked off in Ohio, where the crop was planted late and faced various stresses that cut grain length. We saw this field here uh, had some tip back issues, so it's aborting some kernels at the end of the, uh, the years and stuff like that. And, and so I, I think that whenever you have issues uh, through the growing season, uh, they kind of show up as you progress toward harvest. As a result, the tour trimmed Ohio corn yields to 174.2 bushels, down 6% from 2021. It's not as good as what I saw in the state last year as a whole. Both the corn and soybean crop are highly variable, and even with ample moisture, soybean pod counts are down over 5% at 1,132 pods. I think uh, both for us and in general, I would expect a fairly average year. Um, I'm not necessarily expect, expecting a bumper crop because, like I said, we've had some, some challenges. On day two, scouts headed into Indiana. Driving up to cornfields, the corn looks healthy and high-yielding, but as Eastern Lake agronomist Mark Bernard got into this field, he was disappointed to find some brittle snap and tip back. just goes back to the moisture situation and the heat. It's certainly not the 7- to 8-inch type years that we like to see. So it isn't a surprise to Indiana farmers that corn yields are estimated 8% below 2021 at 177.85 BPA. And I think I'm probably going to fall between that 180 and 190 this year because of the extreme dryness and heat in East Central Indiana. Soybean pod development was supported by a significant improvement in moisture levels after a dry June and July in Indiana. So pod counts are down just 6% from last season. 
Soybeans are looking really good. Uh, we've had timely rains in August, and that's usually when beans are made. So I, I've got a lot of uh, high thoughts about our soybean yields. In Illinois, scouts found a good corn crop, just not the bumper crop of 2021. Brian Divis says corn is uniform and has good plant health, but 80-plus percent of the ears had tip back. Too much heat, uh, too much moisture, stress at the wrong times earlier in the season. It's just shorting the crop and shorting the ears. So the final yield in Illinois was pegged at 190.7 bushels, down nearly 3% from last year. You know, we were looking at maybe a 240 average and, you know, tip back too far, can't do it anymore. Ed Sims is scouted in Illinois the last three years, and he thinks the soybean crop still has potential. The beans look good. We've seen a little uh, SDS. Um, not real bad. Pot counts were down just 2.4%, and Sims says the difference between a good crop and a bumper crop may depend on the weather the rest of the season. This year, they're still going to need one more good mud-soaking rain to finish these beans. The spot with the best chance of exceeding the previous year is eastern Iowa. The noticeable thing is the corn is heavier than the samples, some of the samples we pulled further to the east. Uh, so more typical Iowa corn. Uh, we haven't seen as much tip back. He says the difference is they didn't have extended periods of hot, dry weather. Plus, with less pest pressure, including tar spot and corn rootworm, farmers there are optimistic about corn. Grady also believes there's plenty of yield potential in the soybeans in eastern Iowa. The pods are there as long as they get the moisture and the finishing. In the end, the east wasn't good enough to make up for the west, with Pro Farmer putting the full state's pod counts and corn yield both down 3.6 percent, Iowa's corn yield coming in at 183.8 BPA. Overall, the eastern leg of the tour was strong, just not strong enough to make up for the mess in the western leg. I'm Michelle Rook for U.S. Farm Report. Thank you, Michelle. So just how much damage did all that heat and dry weather do to the crop on the western side of the tour this year? We'll show you that next. The western leg of Pro Farmer Crop Tour got off to a disappointing start as the weather challenges in South Dakota and Nebraska seemed to be the biggest story out of Crop Tour this week. I traveled with scouts across the western leg of the tour to see the disappointments as well as where they found the garden spot this year. And this corn crop, I think, has felt a lot of stress from day one. Chip Flory has been on the Pro Farmer Crop Tour for 30 years. And this year, Southeast South Dakota shows a corn crop that struggled from the start. And then the heat that we had during pollination is showing up in some of the ears that we've sampled because of some shotgun pollination. Uh, not getting pollinated on the butt of the ear or on the tip of the ear. He says this crop was also stressed post-pollination with scouts seeing small kernels. That will take a bite out of South Dakota's final yield in areas. So 100 bushel corn yield calculated might end up being 85 or an 80 because of a reduced kernel size. So it's, uh, it's, it's a crop that has experienced several stress periods in the in the 22 growing season. As Brent Judas trekked across Nebraska this week, dry land fields north of Grand Island showed scars of both drought and heat. We had some ears yesterday were tipped back from the top three inches from the bottom two inches. That's something I've never seen before. And as Judas got into fields just east of Grand Island Tuesday morning. This one here had a lot more stress than this one did, but we've seen that for a day and a half now. Scouts saw irrigated yields up from Monday's routes across Nebraska, but still well below average. First one was in the 140 range, and we had a 158, I think. So that's 30, 40 bushel less than we expected, but even way less than normal for this area. 
Randy Holes is a scout this week, but he also farms about 20 miles south of Lincoln. He says the majority of his area is dry land, and those acres are so dry that corn harvest will be one of the earliest on record. We're looking at next week possibly uh, on the on the short season early early planted. So and typically it's, harvest in August. No. Net scouts waded through western Iowa on Wednesday. Conditions did improve. It seems like everybody wants to talk about record yield or disaster, and we're neither one of those right now. Well, scouts found a better crop than what they saw the first two days. Peter Meyer says he's still not impressed with the corn. One major reason: low ear count. This is where we're losing the yield, right? Where we, we we've had we've had obviously some problems here. The weather did not cooperate early on. Pollination issues, and then. In the case of Nebraska, that crop really went backwards in the last two weeks. Michael McGuire farms in the southwest corner of Iowa, and he says corn yields will be well below last year's surprising yields. I'd say we're below, we're going to be below APH by like 20 bushel. And in this area, the last five years, it, you know, anything below 200 is about crop failure. We've been raising some pretty good corn here lately. When scouts entered Carroll County, Iowa on Wednesday, they seemed to find the garden spot of western Iowa this year. But there's really only a couple county area in all of west central Iowa that has great yield potential this year. The more promising story across western Iowa could be the soybeans. I would say that there's a, a greater chance today of these producers yielding APH or above in beans than there is corn for sure. Stronger soybeans with some spotty showers sweeping across Iowa on Wednesday. Rains that are too late to impact most of the corn. Look, it's not a disaster like Nebraska was for sure, but I think that a lot of this part of western Iowa has been baked into the market already. But I don't think the Nebraska numbers have been baked into the market yet. As scouts suited up and hit the fields Thursday morning, it was a cooler and wetter start in Minnesota. The one thing that impressed me most is the ear count. Tim Gregerson found stronger ear counts and better yields. Here in southern Minnesota, the ear count is right there. It is better than in Iowa on the samples we have taken today. Ear counts were solid, but so was another major factor for yield. This has got more kernel depth than three-fourths of the samples I've taken on the tour this year. But for Minnesota farmer Brad Nelson, a wetter spring and later planting dates has not seemed to hurt his yields. We had a really good week of weather after we planted. It was up in eight days. It all came up. It's southern Minnesota's soybeans that seemed to be a bit of a disappointment on Thursday. All summer long, I just didn't feel like beans had the oomph to really get over the top. Field after field, that's something scouts noticed as they calculated the soybean samples. Pod counts are some of them aren't even a thousand. The beans themselves are short and the pod count is a little bit light this year. Well, was it just what scouts found on Crop Tour that seemed to support commodity prices earlier this week? We'll look into the market drivers with Chip Flory and Brian Grady next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Okay, we asked Brian in the first round table, did the East make up for the lack of crop that we saw in the West? He said, bottom line, no. Do you agree with that? And is that baked into the market right if now? It was going, if the East was going to make up for the problems that we had in the West, the East was going to have to come in better than what we expected. Mm -hmm. And that did not happen. And the expectations, obviously, we don't compare what we find on Crop Tour to the USDA estimates on August 1, but the expectations are built on that farmer survey that builds the August 1 crop estimate from NAS. So that's where the expectations are. I, the, the, the crop hasn't gotten better in the Eastern Corn Belt from August 1. It might have come back just a bit. Out West, 
the crop has gone backwards since August 1. So no, there's no way that, I don't think that the East makes up for the West. Brian, we saw the markets have some strength to start off the week. It seemed like crop tour was kind of fueling some of that. Was it just the results that we're seeing in crop tour and the disappointment in the West, or were there other factors, China and other things that were that were also aiding the market? Yeah, there, there were other factors. I, I think the, the shock factor coming out of the West was a part of it. Um, you know, so keep in mind, some of this is baked in already because trend line is 181. USDA was already four bushels below that with their projection in July, and then they took more off of it with their estimate in August. So those that are out there looking for big chunks down from here forward, we've already taken a big chunk down. Keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, when you look at the supply situation today and the impact on prices, are we already seeing demand destruction take place, or are you nervous about what could happen in the coming months, Chip? Oh, I'm definitely nervous about what could happen in the coming months because look at what's happening in Europe. Severe drought there. We're taking coarse grain bushels away from the market there. We've got the situation in Ukraine. We don't, the bushels that are in Ukraine right now, if we can get them out and into the export market, that's okay. That's going to help some. The bigger concern is for 2023. Are they going to be able to grow a crop in 2023? So now we're starting to look at the balance sheets and looking at how tight it is on the supply side. And you got to start thinking a year out already. Um, we're not adding enough to the supply side of the balance sheet to take pressure off corn or soybeans or wheat. You know, the, the U.S. stocks on wheat, very tight. And I don't remember how many years, but it's been a long time since we've been this day. Cotton. Cotton's going to have to bid for acres, too. All of these crops, all of these crops are looking at tight supply side situation, and we've already cut demand after the August cut to production. It's going to be difficult if we, if we don't have that, if, if we start to pull the crop back, it's going to be difficult to cut demand anywhere because it's already been done. Well, and if we do see prices rise sharply, Mm-hmm. and strong enough that we do pull back demand, yes. how long does it take to rebuild that demand? Yeah. Because we, Boy, we will rebuild the right. supply. I mean, it, you know, it's, it takes one good cropping year, and you've rebuilt the supply, and now you have to rebuild your demand base. Yep. And that takes a lot longer. Yeah. Well, speaking of demand, we did see some export sales to China this week. I mean, is the general consensus that China is really short soybeans, or is it more other grains? China gets what China needs and China wants, and the rest of the world's left with what's left. And, and uh, so that's kind of how that works. And, and if China's buying, it's either they see value or they need supply, or both. And which one do you think it is? I think it's a little of both, to be honest with you. You agree with that? Yeah, I do. And, and you look at the economic conditions over there, there there's the, the China is ripe for some unrest going forward. You better keep some food in the shelves. We've been talking about the rail issues real quick as we head into harvest. Is there anything that you want farmers to know as we head into harvest with some of that that could play out on September 16th, right in the middle of harvest? Well, I think, you know, yeah, the, the whole transportation basis, 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 because the futures price can do whatever it wants, but you get paid off the, what the cash price is. So your basis is extremely important.
Oh, if, if they go on strike, basis is going to bust. Uh, there just isn't going to be enough way to get enough product away from the bigger production areas. And you look at how much, how difficult it already is to get enough feed out to the West Coast, it, it, that's, it's going to create a lot of issues. Okay, leave us on a high note. Congress Brian. is going to step in and stop Congress it. is going to step in. We don't know if it'll be one day, two days, what it'll be, yeah. but leave us on a high note, Brian. Uh, Eastern Corn Belt has a really good corn crop and may have an absolutely spectacular soybean crop. All right. Bidding for acres into 2023. It's going to give us some profit opportunities. Brian, Chip, thank you so much for joining us. All right, we need to take a quick break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by RCIS. We believe in making connections count by building relationships with farmers and crop insurance agents. RCIS, we've got this. Equal opportunity provider. Scouts from the East Coast this week said diesel supplies on the East Coast are still extremely low. Bloomberg reports that New York gasoline inventories are so low that suppliers are resorting to expensive U.S. vessels via the Jones Act to move fuel into the region to head off any potential shortages. But why is the Jones Act so controversial? That's actually customer support this week. Well, this question took some research. What would be the economic effect of repealing the Jones Act on U.S. agriculture? And that question's from James Covert in Tiscawa, Illinois. Well, the quick answer is repealing the Jones Act would be minimally beneficial for U.S. ag as a whole, but enormous for specific locations and industry. Now, to recap here, the 1920 Jones Act requires all waterborne shipping between U.S. ports to be done on U.S. built, owned, flagged, and manned ships. Rooted in the memories of World War I and II, our idea that our national security is dependent on our ability to move troops and equipment across the oceans is not merely outdated, but this act has essentially crippled our domestic maritime industry. We simply are no longer a maritime shipping country. Our container capacity is less than a tenth of a percent of global capacity, for example. Our shipbuilding industry is almost non-existent, with seven deep draft builders, four of which, though, are exclusively military, like carriers and submarines. In contrast, Japan has over a thousand shipyards. Our domestic ocean shipping industry is wildly uncompetitive, with cost as much as double or more for shipping. It's stuck in the 1940s, thanks to the Jones Act. Meanwhile, Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and other U.S. territories bear extravagant costs on their economies, including their ag. Hawaiian cattle ranchers ship animals through Canada. North Carolina hog operations buy corn from Canada, and Puerto Rico sources fuel from Nicaraguan refineries rather than U.S. due to the cost of Jones-compliant shipping. To be sure, such headaches don't nudge the soybean supply and demand curve much, but this counterproductive law has not saved our merchant marine nor improved our national defense. During Desert Storm, for example, the U.S. military used ships from everywhere, and it only shipped about a sixth of the materiel on U.S. bottoms. It is hard to project what would happen in the very unlikely event of repeal, but some experts suspect 
that the efficiency of water transport would restructure coastal agricultural trade by finding new ways to avoid those crowded truck and rail routes. The repeal of the Jones Act has been a nominal ag priority for decades, but the burdens it imposes are carried by so few that it falls too far down our list of legislative goals. Thanks, John. We'll get that commentary posted on agweb.com. All right, when we come back, the drought uncovered something pretty spectacular in Texas before those rains hit this week. We'll show you what it was coming up next. something different than crop tour to end the show with this week. Look what extreme drought in Texas has uncovered. Dinosaur tracks from about 113 million years ago were spotted in a dried out river in Dinosaur Valley State Park. A park official says these tracks likely came from an Acrocanthusaurus. It weighed seven tons and reached 15 feet tall, but recent rains were expected to cover the tracks back up again. It's amazing what Mother Nature will reveal. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend as we gave you a front row seat to Pro Farmer Crop Tour this year. Be sure to join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.